0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9, verses 24 through 29 this morning. This is our fifth sermon in Romans chapter 9, and I'll be honest with you, when we first began the the study through Romans back in July of last year, um, I was pleased that the overview of Romans 9 through 11 fell to Pastor Matt. I was relieved that at that moment that I didn't have to deal with Romans 9 through 11 because, frankly, uh, this section of Scripture is intimidating and a little bit overwhelming. However, my confidence then is my confidence now. With the help of the Holy Spirit and opening the Word of God, that we can understand his word and we can understand what he wants to say. And I have been pleased and grateful over the last five weeks of the Lord's grace to me to expound upon or expound the word of God, the Romans chapter 9. And I believe that he will continue over the next several weeks or months as we go through these three chapters but I think that that what I want to communicate to you is is that I'm not here to try to defend uh, a particular um uh person a, a particular name, a brand of of theology, so to speak. M- my goal and my purpose is to open the word of God and say, this is what God's word says I'm not pointing to to a, a man now granted. I read various commentaries uh, that are cut from a a general cloth. However, it's not my objective to defend, say, Calvinism or refute Arminianism, but rather to simply open the word of God and let it speak. Amen? And so for that reason, it it doesn't feel like I have uh, all that difficult of a task. Because this is what God's word says, and we believe God's word. And the reality is that Paul was defending the doctrine of election 2,000 years ago. So this is nothing new. The the, the controversy of election versus free will is nothing new. Uh, That's why we have Romans uh, 9 through 11. Paul, Paul was experiencing opposition to his theology, to his presentation, to the gospel, to the Gentiles. That that was novel. That was new. Paul is taking the gospel to people who were not Jews. And as we'll see today, that that is something that perhaps we take for granted. Nevertheless, Paul, even 2,000 years ago, found himself defending the doctrine of election. So we should not be surprised that it continues to be uh, a, a difficult doctrine within the church today. But in this passage, and really from from the beginning of Romans nine, Paul emphatically makes the case for God's sovereignty. He is free to have mercy on whomever he wills, and 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 that. The fact that he stays his hand of grace from some people is in no way an injustice. The fact that he gives mercy to some and simply gives justice to other people is not unfair on God's part. The reality is that God owes everyone judgment and he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. Jew And Gentile alike, as Paul asserts in today's passage. Let's read here Romans chapter 9, verses 24 through 29. Paul says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence knowing that you are the sovereign ruler, creator, king. You are our God and we are your people. But it has not always been that way. And it's an act of mercy that we who are not your people can now be called your people. And we who are not beloved are now beloved. And I pray, Father, that that would not be lost on us. Help us to remember that and help us to respond to that and give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Paul says in verse 24, which is a continuation of verses 22 through 23, he says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That sentence began in verse 22 with, What if God? And it concludes with this verse 24 Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles and that statement is specifically an explanation of the phrase vessels of mercy so god has waited with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory even us that that's we are the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. The sentence begins with what if God, ends with a question mark, and there is no answer, there is no conclusion. That's why I said last week that this is a protasis with no apodosis. It is a conditional statement with no conclusion. If, then. When you have a conditional clause, a conditional statement, if, you expect a then. But there is no then. Evidently, the then is self-evident in Paul's mind. Evidently, it's so obvious that he doesn't even need to state it. All he does after this point is go on to explain the conclusion, which is self-evident, by quoting several prophecies that fulfill the warning of Moses in Deuteronomy. Now, before we move on from this and start looking at these prophecies, I want you to notice that Paul uses the word called. Even us whom he has called. The Greek word "kaline" is no mere invitation of God. The calling is not merely at, hey, you guys want to play? Hey, hey you want to come over? It's no mere invitation of God. It is an effectual calling. We have been called out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, just like Jesus called Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb. Now, this word called brings us back to Romans 8.28, that beloved promise. Don't we love Romans 8.28? Yes, and it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, few people quibble over Romans 8, We all love the sovereignty of God when it comes to Romans 8, When it comes to God working sovereignly in our lives to make this bad thing, this bad circumstance this bad event worked for our good. We love the sovereignty of God. We, we depend upon the sovereignty of God. But Romans 9 is built upon Romans chapter 8 and specifically the calling that God has on our life, the effectual calling and that promise is not in isolation. Romans eight twenty eight is not a standalone verse. No, it continues in Romans eight twenty nine through thirty, where Paul says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called." And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now listen, here's the thing. And I want to say this with all humility and with a smile on my face, but you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be clinging to the calling of God on your life and and the sovereignty of God to work things for your your good And, and, and his sovereign hand is at work you can't, you can't have the calling and deny the calling. Amen? You want God to sovereignly work in your life? Well, great, because that's who he is and that's what he does. Because he's called you out of death and into life. It's an effectual calling. And the call of God is no small matter It's no small matter to Paul. He's going to repeat the idea of God's calling three times in these next two verses. He says in verse 25 and 26. Well, let's go to verse 25 first. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Now, remember that the context of Romans chapter 9, Paul is, is defending, he's answering the question of why is it that if this is a, if this is a Jewish Messiah and, and it's, a, it's a gospel that originated among the Jews, why have so many of the Jews rejected the gospel? And how is it that people who have nothing to do with the Jews could somehow benefit from from this Jewish savior. How is that possible? How is it that the covenant that God made with Abraham can be rejected by so many of his offspring and yet be transferable or beneficial to people who are not Abraham's offspring, namely the Gentiles? Perhaps you and I, because we've been, you know, the church is now 2,000 years old and, and many of, of us have grown up in the church, perhaps we've taken for granted that Gentiles at one point were not my people to God. That Gentiles, the Gentile world, were considered not my people. That it was an act of sheer grace to allow us to be called sons of the living God, as, as Paul says in verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What is striking in both of these verses is that both... References in Hosea, it was first Hosea 2.23 and then Hosea 1.10. Both of these were originally written to the people of the northern tribes of Israel. And yet Paul applies them now to the church. We, who were not God's people, have now been called sons of the living God. Now, Paul has already made it clear that not all who are born of Abraham are his offspring. He said that in Romans 9, 7. You can look back up there and it says, not all who are Abraham's descendants belong to Abraham. And in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, we read that a true Jew is one inwardly with a circumcised heart. True Jews are those who have been born again and believe the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is after all the true Israel of God. In Matthew chapter 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph warning him to flee with the baby Jesus. Why? Because Herod was seeking to destroy him. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew records this in Matthew 2:15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. So Isaiah, in in chapter 11, verse 1, said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the renewed Israel, the son that God said he would call out of Egypt. The book of Hosea captures the story of God agonizing over the wayward Israel, and yet he is resolute to not destroy them forever. And if you know much about the story of Hosea, you know that this came at great personal cost to him. Hosea the prophet was was told to marry the prostitute Gomer, and she lived in open immorality by her. Hosea had one child whom they named Jezreel. And he accepted that this was his biological child. But his wife had two more children. And Hosea denied that they were his own. And the Lord had him name them prophetically, Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy. And Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And these children's names reveal God's heart toward the adulterous people of Israel. Yet in the same letter, God promises that the broken relationship would not remain forever. There would come a time in which those who were not his people would be called his people. He would cause a renewed Israel to come. An Israel who would be faithful to him who would love him and obey him. And Jesus is that is real. He is the fulfillment of the law, He is the fulfillment of prophecy, and He is the one by whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. In fulfillment, of God's promise all the way back to Abraham. Just as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understands that the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. Thus it is those who by faith are united to Christ who are part of the true Israel of God. As Paul continues in Galatians 3, "...for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith." For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, the question that you might be asking is Has God forgotten the people of Israel? Has God forsaken his chosen people? Has God's word failed? That was the opposition. That was what was suggested. That's where where we begin in in chapter 9. It's not as though God's word has failed, Paul argues, because someone must have been arguing that it has, or at least it begged the question, has God failed to remember his covenant? And the answer, of course, is no. First of all, Paul says that we who have been called are the Jews and Gentiles. Paul was a Jew. The first 3,000 converts in Acts chapter 2 were Jews. The church began to grow and expand first among the Jews And not only that, but but as we get into Romans chapter 11, it's going to be clear that God is not done with Israel. That God has a plan for ethnic Israel. When the full number of the Gentiles comes in, which implies that there is a finite number, when the full number of Gentiles comes in, then the partial hardening that God has placed upon the ethnic Israel will be lifted. And at that time, every Jew will be saved. Now, how is that going to happen? I don't know. I I think that it might be similar to Paul's conversion, in which in a moment, scales fall from their eyes and Jews recognize Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, just as Paul did 2,000 years ago. In the end, the Jews will join the redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, and the church will be complete. This is not some modern interpretation. It's not even a Reformed interpretation of the Hosea prophecies. Not only did Paul interpret Hosea in light of the church, and you might expect Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to interpret Hosea in light of the church, but it wasn't only Paul who took this Hosea prophecy and said it's fulfilled in the church. No, Peter did as well. Peter, who mostly ministered among the Jews, He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy in 1 Peter 2.10. So both Paul and Peter, the apostle to the Gentiles and arguably the apostle to the Jews, they both saw in the prophecy of Hosea, as well as to the original covenant that God made with Abraham, the future inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. We who were not God's people have been called sons of the living God. We who had previously been shown no mercy, both Jew and Gentile alike, in Christ we have been shown mercy. So, where is the cause for boasting? Paul will rebuke the church for boasting and their arrogance. I believe that one of the issues that Paul heard about in the Roman church was that the Gentile Christians were looking down upon the Jews. Where where is the cause of boasting in God's election? There is none. There is none. We were simply shown mercy and adopted into the family of God. Continuing in verse 27 and 28, Paul says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord, the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Now the context of this scripture is the pronouncement that God is going to use Assyria to bring judgment upon the northern tribes of Israel. This comes from Isaiah chapter 10. And in Isaiah 10, 6, he refers to Israel as a godless nation and the people of my wrath. And in 722 BC, God sent Assyria to take captive the northern ten tribes of Israel And unlike in the Babylonian captivity, about two centuries later, about a century and a half later, those Jews never returned. Judgment was executed fully and without delay. And the northern ten tribes of Israel were taken captive by Assyria in 722 in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, Paul includes this prophecy of Isaiah to remind the reader that not only was the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God prophesied long ago through Hosea, but so also was the limited response of the Jews or the minimal inclusion of the Jews in salvation. None of this contradicts The Word of God. Has the Word of God failed? It's not as if the Word of God has failed, Paul is arguing. All of this has been prophesied from long ago. The inclusion of Gentiles into the family of God, Hosea said that clearly. The fact that very few Jews will be saved, Isaiah makes that very clear. None of this contradicts the Word of God, but rather it fulfills it. It is no surprise to Paul that most of his fellow Jews rejected the gospel and rejected their Messiah. Nevertheless, Paul saw that there was a remnant of Israel that believed the gospel, and that was evidence that God is not finished with Israel. I I believe that the attitude that, that, that some Christians can have is to forget that we gentiles have been grafted into the family of God which came through the line of Abraham that we are Israel that we have been grafted into Israel and God will save a remnant of ethnic Israel and will bring them salvation verse 29 and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now the Lord warned his people all the way back in the days of Moses, this was a warning through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 29, that after their 40, he, this was after their 40 years of, of wilderness wanderings, he's renewing the covenant that he made with them, they're about to go into the promised land and he's renewing this covenant, he's reminding them of the covenant that he made with them and he warns them to be careful to walk according to the covenant and not to turn to other gods. And if they did not, he would bring upon them the curses found in the rest of the book. And this is what the Lord says through Moses in Deuteronomy 29. And the next generation, your children, will rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from far from a far land will say, "When they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout." an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, before the nation of Israel enters into the promised land, God warns them, do not chase after other gods. Do not adapt the worship, the pagan worship of the people in the land that you are to dispossess. Did it last? Did it work? No. No. No, I'm currently reading through the Old Testament, and I'm in, 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 in uh, Second Chronicles. And it's, and it's one after another after another, even the good kings are said to, are said to have not been all the way good, <laughs> uh, they, that, they, that they, they honor the Lord, but there's a clause. There, there's an exception. And so many of them, they start off well, and they end so poorly, even the good kings. And there were no good kings in the northern ten tribes of Israel. Did they keep it? Hardly. And, and, and God warns his people through Moses that if you go off and serve these pagan gods, and whore after them. That's the language, the adultery. If, If you whore after these idols, these pagan gods, then you're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as somewhat of a billboard of God's judgment upon nations, complete and utter destruction. The fact that God saved a remnant of the Jews You see, Isaiah says that if God had not spared a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was completely wiped away. If God, by his grace, had not spared a remnant, we would have been utterly and totally destroyed. Israel, in Isaiah's day, was worthy of utter and total destruction. And Israel in Paul's day was worthy of utter and complete destruction. They crucified the Son of God. But the failure of the Jews to believe the gospel is no failure of the word of God. God has not broken his word to his people. They have, but he has not. The apostasy of Israel was long foretold as was the inclusion of Gentiles into the family of God. The reality, folks, is that we are worthy of complete destruction. It is an act of sheer grace. Why is this modern day babylon called the united states not smoldering with hellfire and brimstone i have no idea grace mercy the gentile world is no better i mean as if i even need to say that it is sheer grace that you and I would be able to call God our Father. That ought to elicit out of you incredible awe and reverence and humility and gratitude. There, There is no reason that we should ever have to encourage you to sing, worship. Because you have so internalized the magnitude of the fact that you, a Gentile, Would be called Son of the Living God. That so fills your heart with praise and gratitude that you cannot wait for the opportunity to sing and to worship. Amen? This has a transformative effect on our lives. When we no longer take for granted. What God has done. How wonderful to be called a child of God. Amen? That most of Israel, the people of God, were not saved in Isaiah's day or in Paul's day or in our day ought to cause the church to pause and reflect upon. The fact that merely being associated with the people of God does not guarantee inclusion therein. No one should take consolation that their family has always been in the church or that their name has been in a member directory for decades. The reality is that most people in the world will not be saved. Let me me say that again. Most people in the world will not be saved. Most people in the world will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, Pastor Brian, that's speaking about the world at large, but I'm church folk. I'm in the church. I'm good, right? Remember, Remember that Paul said that a Jew is one inwardly, not outwardly or not only outwardly. That true circumcision is of the heart, not the flesh. Likewise, real Christians are Christians inwardly, not just outwardly. And baptism is of the spirit, not just of the water. It should come as no surprise to hear that there will be many people, even in the church, who are not saved. Jesus predicted this in Matthew 13 when he told the parable of the weeds and the wheat, or you may know it as the wheat and the tares. Even within the church, Jesus says there's going to be unbelievers who rise up next to believers. They are convinced that they are saved. They honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from them. They give the Christian platitudes, but given the opportunity to praise the Lord from their heart, their mouths remain silent. These are the ones who will hear Jesus' faithful words. And I'm I'm not suggesting that if you don't sing in worship that this is you, but I do wonder, I do wonder, I do wonder how Christians can abstain from worship. I do wonder that. Because it's not about, do I like this song? This is about me praising my God, worshiping my God. But nevertheless, these, these people who honor the Lord with their lips, but their heart is far from them, whatever that looks like, are there worshipers whose hearts are far from them? 100% yes. But this is what, it, this is what Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's on the day of judgment. That's the final verdict. These people who presume upon their salvation because of external factors, like they've been in the church, their family's been in the church, they were baptized, they presume upon the Lord, they don't love the Lord, they've not been born again, they don't believe the gospel, Rather, they presume upon goodness. Right now, my daughter is interviewing for membership, and I joked with her, and I'm so glad that I can joke with her, that the gospel is about work hard and do the right things and, 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 and give your tithe, and maybe you'll get in. And I, I'm thankful I can say that to her, and she laughs at that because she knows the gospel. But there are people in the church that think that that's true. They presume upon because they've done good things. They they will say to the Lord on that day, I was a member of the church. I was baptized. I was catechized. I was in Awana, I served in kids ministry, I taught Sunday school, I was a pastor, I was a deacon, I was an elder, I was an evangelist, I took my kids to church, I wore the church's T-shirts, I shared their Facebook content, I hosted a connect group, I went on mission trips, I packed Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. I sang in the worship team, I served food at potlucks, I even stayed afterwards to clean up Jesus. I never knew you. Do you get that? Those are the most tragic four words that will ever be uttered. I never knew you. That's what Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 7. Many in the church, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Depart from me, will ring in the ears of these people for all of eternity. In the words of the late R.C. Sproul, the state of our soul is invisible to man, but it is manifestly visible to God. You can you you can deceive everyone around you. But not a single soul has ever deceived God. If ethnic Israel could not rely upon external factors for salvation, then why do you think that you can? We've seen these lyrics. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let me ask you something Do you mean those words? In just a moment, we're going to sing that song. And I want this to be a heart check for you. My hope. My hope of what? My hope of salvation. My hope of eternal life is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is not built upon the things that I do for God. It is not built upon my heritage, my history, my connection to the church, my relationship to other people. My hope is built upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you mean that? The saved mean that. Brother and sister, the truths found in Romans 9 through 11 of God's wrath and His mercy, of your inclusion in the family of God as beloved children, ought to evoke in you a sincerity of worship and an earnestness of faith. I want you to wrestle with the truth of the gospel. I want you to I want you to I want you to put your anchor in the ground that 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 you have been called a beloved child of God. That you have been you have gone from not my people to my people. And I want you to to wrestle rather than presume and to know that you know Jesus and more importantly that Jesus knows you. And when you've gotten there, I want you to praise him for his mercy so undeserved. And then I want you to rest in his effectual call. Knowing that he, who, he, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And those who have been called will one day see Jesus face to face, and you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. We're going to transition now to communion, which is an opportunity for you to examine your hearts, as Paul said to examine your hearts if if after hearing this if after hearing this message you console yourself with your virtues that is your sign You know, I thank the Lord for Romans 1 through 8. It was easy to preach through Romans 1 through uh, through 3, talking about sin, because we all know it. We all know that we're sinners. It was incredible to preach through Romans 4 through 5, or the last part of 3 through 5, on justification, because it's like, oh, thank you, Lord, for what you did. In my life. And it was awesome to preach through Romans 6 through 8, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, the assurance of salvation. And I dreaded Romans 9 through 11, but now I praise the Lord for Romans 9 through 11. If you can hear these words and you can presume upon what you have done. And what you abstain from that other people do that are wrong, the sins you don't commit, and the right things that you do. If you can presume upon those things, this message is for you. Repent of that presumption. Repent of that self righteousness whatever it takes ask the lord break you to the point that you realize that your hope is built upon nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness and remember remember what jesus has done for you as the worship team returns we give you this time to examine your hearts God's mercy is real, but so is his wrath. Do you know Jesus, and does Jesus know you? Father, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for your word, all of it, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see clearly What are we hoping in for salvation? Lord, we thank you that those who are not your people, you have called to be your people. Lord, help us to live like that. Help us to live out of what you've done for us, beginning first and foremost right now with worship. In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.